I think the worst part about the extremist agenda is that they don't give you an opportunity to know the truth and make a decision. They give you misinformation so that you decide what they've already decided for you and for everybody you love. And you don't know it because you've been exploited for your lack of knowledge about these details. And they're, you know, they're very complicated and you've been exploited, frankly, because you love animals. Hi, I'm Heidi Harriet. Welcome to Animal Tales, where we'll talk about my favorite subject, animals. I'm so proud to be a third generation animal trainer, caretaker, and animal welfare expert, following in the footsteps of my father and grandfather. I started this podcast so you can hear from experts, true experts and subject matter professionals about animals, those people who truly live with, care for, and work with animals. In contrast to the noise, the vocal minority, the animal rights extremist, and the misinformation they put out there. Today's episode is a great example of that. We're going to talk about animals in medical research. What a controversial topic, a very emotional topic. And again, the real information is drowned out by the animal rights community. Dr. Cindy Buckmaster has been 25 years an advocate and transparent and authentic about the information on research with animals. She holds a PhD in neurobiology and behavior and was formerly the director of the Center for Comparative Medicine at Baylor College. She's also the director of public outreach for the National Animal Interest Alliance. You hear a lot about that organization on this podcast, a great resource. She's also the past chair and spokesperson for Americans for Medical Progress. She's going to tell you about a program called Homes for Animal Heroes, where they actually rehome research animals after their service. Welcome. It's so great to have you here. Well, thank you so much, Heidi. I appreciate you having me on. You know, I'm, I, you were one of the first people when I, when I knew I was going to do the podcast because I feel like there's so much more of the story about animals, animal-related enterprises, all of that. I, I collaborated with you or you were the expert on a story I wrote for Protect the Harvest. And then as uh, I didn't even know this was happening, but I met you at the National Animal Interest Alliance, NIA right. for short, conference in Florida this year. And I was so delighted when I heard somebody say your name and I was like, I, I know her from email communication. And you, you gave amazing presentation there, two presentations, I believe. So I knew that you were somebody I wanted to have on. And uh, so thank you, because you're, I mean, when you read the show notes and your bio, it's, it's amazing what you're doing. And thank you for all of the work you're doing. It's important and amazing. Well, that's very kind of you, and I appreciate your support. Thanks so much. Absolutely. Well, let's start out. You are uh, responsible for uh, creating a program, uh, Homes for Animal Heroes. And this is a program that rehomes, once they're through with their service as uh, research animals, these uh, dogs particularly are trained and socialized and then adopt it out. So tell me about that program. Tell our listeners about that program because I was so impressed with it. Yeah, so uh, they don't require a lot of socialization actually because they are very well socialized in research typically. Um, they're 
at least paired or group housed, depending on compatibilities uh, with other dogs. And they also get a lot of human interaction. Um, very often they have playrooms, depending on where the research institution is located, they have outside time. So uh, folks don't think that because they hear a very different narrative from groups who are opposed to research with animals. And I'm not saying that everybody does it as well as everyone else, but certainly anywhere I've been that has dogs, that has been the case. Um, and so uh, the whole point of, of the program is um, you know, to rehome those dogs who can be rehomed. Now, I need to be very clear with your audience that uh, the vast majority of all animals in research are euthanized at the end of the study. And that's because the answers are in the tissues, right? But not all animals have to be euthanized. And in the case of dogs, um, there are a lot of uh, dogs that are a part of uh, safety testing prior to um, drugs being introduced to human volunteers in clinical trials before drugs go to market, right? So there's this uh, there's this period of, of safety testing that happens. Um, and dogs are very important because our cardiovascular systems are extremely similar. Um, and so they get, they get, they're part of that safety screening. Some of those dogs will be euthanized because they're looking for levels of toxicity in all the various organs. But uh, later on, when you start worrying, you know, when you start getting uh, involved in like, um, uh, dose predictions and distribution of drugs and things like that. There are studies called the pharmacokinetic studies or PK studies. And in those cases, the animals don't um, have to be euthanized in many cases, right? This, they, the, the chemical or the compound, the putative drug is flush in the system and they can find homes. And so we find uh, lots and lots of these dogs' homes afterward. Um, and so Homes Family Heroes uh, started placing their first dog uh, in 2017, February 2017. Um, it's a program of the National Animal Interest Alliance. So Patty Strand, who's the president of that organization, is my co-founder because I pitched it to her and her board, crashed one of their meetings uh, in Vegas <laughs> in July. And uh, and because they're so amazing and they understand um, the need for these animals re in research and, and the need also to respect and honor these animals who who give so much for us, um, they, they allowed me to roll with it. And so we've placed now over 500 of these dogs in uh, permanent loving homes. Um, uh, Fantastic. Yeah, thank you. The most important part of the program and the only way it will really work, well, there are a couple things. First of all, our partners. Um, so we have research partners in academia, in, uh, you know, we have corporate partners like pharmaceutical companies and, and contract research organizations. We have government partners. So we, we have, we run the gamut of partnerships with respect to those involved with research, uh, uh, with animals, um, but uh, they're always anonymous, and that's important because uh, there's there's a group out there called the Beagle Freedom Project who had started uh, doing this sort of thing, and basically they were exploiting existing adoption programs, and that's something I should let your listeners know right now, that institutions independently have been adopting every kind of animal that you can think of in research that didn't have to be euthanized out to the public for, you know, close to 50 years, right? In all, all the states of, across the country. Um, so that's not uncommon. What was uncommon was for institutions to release them to somebody outside, external, right? So generally these were internal adoptions, people they knew. Um, and that's because of the, you know, the ever existing threat by animal rights extremists against institutions and the people doing research and the people caring for the animals. And, and so um, everything was sort of uh, internal then the Beagle Freedom Project started exploiting existing adoption programs and misrepresenting, um, or at least sending others in, in some cases, to misrepresent their intentions. And then they'd get these dogs, and, you know, the next day there'd be, you know, a press conference, 
you know, at the state capitol or something like this, where they would have this dog and say that they rescued this animal from research. You know, I don't know how they did that. Did they break in at night? I mean, I don't know, right? These were animals that were freely offered for adoption because the research community loves them to pieces and and they're so grateful for them and they want to honor them with a, you know, a, a great loving, permanent loving home, right, in the future. So they were offered for adoption, but they misportrayed that. And then um, told spread a lot of misinformation about the well-being of the animals, and which you could see very clearly if you look at the animal in the picture. What they were saying about the animal was clearly not true. Um, but so they started making a lot of money, basically using our our heroes as uh, props for misinformation and propaganda. And so Homes for Animal Heroes was the antidote to that. One of the things that inspired me to create it is, as a consequence of the actions of this uh, extremist organization. Um, who, by the way, had strong ties to the ALF um, historically. Which is uh, the Animal Liberation Front, which is recognized as a terrorist, domestic terrorist organization in the United correct. States by the that's FBI. Yeah. Yes, and the, the previous vice president of the Beagle Freedom Project was actually um, arrested and jailed and spent six or so years in federal prison for violating the Animal Enterprise Protection Act, which was then strengthened to become the Animal Enterprise Terrorism Act. Um, but in either case, um, as a consequence of their actions, um, some of the higher ops in the institutions that had been historically adopting animals out to the public um, uh, stopped doing it. And they basically said, don't do it anymore. These folks, uh, we don't want to tangle with them. Um, they, they figured out what they were up to, right? Because the animals that they adopted out would show up on their web pages later with all this misinformation and propaganda. Yep. And so I was, you know, so basically, you know, what that meant was then research institutions who had been more open with even members of the public, like, you know, sometimes vet schools um, had public facing adoption um, programs. And uh, so there were challenges to that. And I didn't want them to euthanize these animals. So I made phone calls to all kinds of folks all over the country and said, hey, if I can come up with a way for you to have a mechanism to adopt these animals out that you trust, that will protect your anonymity and that understands the needs of these animals, right? Because I myself have been in lab animal care for over 25 years, right? So, um, and there are some special things that our dogs need, right? So they live in very controlled environments. They're the same people loving on them all the time. It's, not, it's very predictable. They eat around the same time every day, right? The, their schedules are the same. They have all right. their monthly this and that happens, you know, with their vet nails and ears and everything else, right? And they exercise in the same space all the time, right? They don't generally hear flushing toilets or vacuums. They don't do stairs. They haven't had car rides. They don't know about noisy traffic or noisy dinner uh, table, you know, discussions or children pulling on them. You know, so all of these things are new to our dogs, you know, or if they don't get to go outside, depending on where they where they live, um, then wind and leaves swirling around. All of these things can be somewhat traumatic to an animal that's never been exposed to any of it. And so the foster care experience is extremely important because we've got to get these dogs acclimated to residential living. Um, and then they do really, really well. Um, and they tend to be compatible, extremely compatible with other dogs because they're used to other dogs. Yeah. Um, they have to, sometimes they have to be potty trained. Oftentimes they have to be potty trained. And uh, they learn some, they usually learn some basic manners like sit and all of that in their institutions from the people they interact with. But there are some things for them to learn and get used to. And so we do all of that in foster. And then, um, you know, as folks who are in direct uh, discussion all the time with the institutions they came from, we already have, sort of a heads up on their compatibilities, what they like, what they don't like, what kind of toys, what kind of this and that, right? And and we can use that information along with what we uh, gather about them in foster care. Do they like cats? How are they with kids? How are they with, you know, sure. um, and then we use that to find them really compatible 
adopter. And I will tell you uh, the other thing about our contract uh, is, is that it stipulates that if the relationship doesn't work out, then you have to return the dog to our network. We do not want these animals ending up in shelters. That is the worst place in the world for one of our dogs to end up. And you think about it, right? They're going from the most highly regulated animal industry you can think of <laughs> to one of the least regulated yes. animal industries you can think of. And the shelter is a place where they're going to be singly housed and there's just strange people everywhere and all kinds of noise. And it's it's just inherently traumatic for our dogs. And so we don't want them, you know, they want, we want them back, right? We're the ones who are going to take care of our heroes. So that's that's only happened to us two or three times um, that we've had whatever the relationship didn't work out because someone was moving or whatever. Right. Um, and then they come back to us and we find them a new home within our network. So it's been going very, very well. Um, Fantastic. And very, yeah. And we're in 15 states now. And uh, so, yeah, what we, all we need is support, right? Financial support to continue to expand, right? And I urge everybody out there, instead of giving your money to extremists, give your money to people who are really caring for animals, right? The NAIA does that in, the, in a lot of facets, but in particular with Homes for Animal Heroes, which I'm interested in. in very What's active. the website for Homes for Animal Heroes? Is it? Uh, it's Homes for Animal Heroes. And okay. you just, put, just type in Homes for Animal Heroes and, and you'll, you'll be redirected to uh, an NAIA, you know, like a section of the NAIA website. Since it's and I'll NAIA. put that in show notes for sure. So we have that. And we have a Facebook page as well. So you can learn a lot about their contributions to Great. us and everyone love and why they're heroes. Right. But they're heroes. They shouldn't be props. They right. should be they should be recognized uh, as ambassadors for the truth and the heroes right. they really are. Boy, I don't know about you, but I'm learning a great deal of information about animals in medical research. I'm talking with Dr. Cindy Buckmaster. She holds a Ph.D. in neurobiology and behavior and she is the director for public outreach for the National Animal Interest Alliance. You mentioned a couple of things I want to touch on um, that they're research animals. You know, help us understand there's there's such emotion around this. And again, the reason I'm doing the podcast, we just em employ emotion and philosophy and ideology. And I, I see it this way, Cindy, there's a happy face emoji on, you know, picture Facebook or the care emoji. And then there's the angry emoji and the tear emoji. Pretty much across the board with the animals, especially in the uneducated public, people who are listening who don't hear these stories, they choose one or the other of those. It's a real happy story or it's really angry. And the thinking face is the one I, I always encourage and be curious, want more information, try to understand do you really believe people are that horrible or that every story is a great story? There's a middle we just don't hear. Why do why are we still researching with animals? If you can touch on that, I know we could do a whole podcast about that and maybe should, but help help us just explain um, to people why that's so important for people and animals. Yeah, that is a long story. So let me see if I can shorten that up. The first thing I want to say is, um, you know, nobody who, who works with animals in research wants that to be the case. We would all prefer that animals were not necessary for this because for the most part, we're all animal lovers, right? Um, Absolutely. But uh, at this point in time, it is still necessary. And before I can clarify that for you, I need to first clarify uh, the fact that when someone considers the word research or animal research, in their head, everybody's thinking about something else because, you know, they have different ideas of what that is and what that means. Most people, when they hear research with animals, are thinking about drug development, animal, you know, testing drugs on animals before they are uh, 
before these drugs enter clinical trials, right? And that's sort of what we had mentioned before. But that actually is, that's the you know, the prize. Right? That's, that's the prize we get for decades and decades and decades of what we call basic research that that informs that prize, right? So for decades prior to the development of any kind of drug, researchers all over this world are looking at intact biological systems, trying to understand how they actually function when they're healthy. Because you can't recognize disease or what's wrong with something until you know how it's put together and how it functions on every level when it's healthy, right? And by, by every level, I mean at the organismal level, the organ systems, the organs themselves, tissues, cells, genetics, you know, the the biomed uh, the bio chemical uh, settings of, of all of these reactions that occur that sustain life. So these are really complicated biological um, phenomena. And of course, all of these things also interact with the environment to make things even more complicated, right? And sure. so you'll hear the extremist groups, like PETA says this all the time, you know, we can send people to the moon in rocket ships, right? And and we can put, you know, we have computers now, they mean cell phones that fit in our pocket. Why on earth are we still doing animal research? And the answer is, we designed rocket ships. We designed computers and cell phones. We did not design biological systems. We are not the creators of all living things, and we're still trying to figure out how they work. Um, and the truth is, we still know very little about them, to be honest with you. They're so inordinately complex, far more complex than the things we have created and designed. And the best, the best we get uh, and have gotten over the years are, are clues about how various things work. And as I mentioned, there's all these complex questions that have to be asked at all of these levels of complexity. Um, and those clues get pulled together because we write papers and we send them out, you know, send them out into the public uh, domain. And at some point, enough clues get gathered up that someone on the applied end of things, like a pharmaceutical company, for example, will say, aha, it looks like based on all of the findings from thousands of researchers and millions of animals over decades, <laughs> it looks like that uh, people, for example, and I'll simplify this with disease X, it looks like they have disease X because they can't make protein X. So if we can create a drug that acts like protein X, we might be able to treat disease X. And that's how the whole process works. And so, um, you know, the reason we still need animals is we're trying to understand these complex biological systems. Now, I believe very strongly in, and I have a, another podcast of my own called Get Real About Animal Research. And I encourage yeah, you fantastic. to check it out. Yes. You know, if they're interested in really learning the deep, deep truth about how all of this works, uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly, it's all in there, right? Fabulous. Um, but one of my, my tagline for that is stronger science, faster cures, fewer animals. You know, there is a way away from animals, but it has to be tied to what is a responsible, reliable and predictive when it comes to human health, because everybody listening here wants, you know, the next treatment for X, Y and Z. And they want to be cured of disease X, Y and Z when they have to understand that animals are still necessary for that to happen. We should absolutely continue to explore and incorporate to the best of our ability all of these uh, cell based technologies, these non animal alternatives that you keep hearing about, like organs on chips and uh, organoids, you know, and, and tumoroids and all of these 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 other and these complex computer algorithms. And these are very powerful ways to uh, provide provide us with certain answers, right? Certain aspects, certain answers to uh, larger questions, right? So we can get very important pieces of information that are very human relevant because they're, they're usually designed um, with human tissue and human cells. We can get some information, but we cannot, there is no alternative 
that uh, fully replaces an intact living system. And we can't create something to behave like that because we still don't know how it works, right? You know, so people always say to me, well, you could just use computers. And I say, well, that's interesting because in order for me to program a computer to behave on every level, like an intact living system, I have to know everything there is to know about an intact living system. And I don't. So right. what you're asking me to do is is to create something to act like something I don't fully understand in order to understand more about what I don't understand. And of course, <laughs> when you say it like that, it makes perfect sense. It, and so yes. there's just stuff that we can't predict, you know, so I mean, how are you, for example, with an organ on a chip going to understand how a whole system works? There isn't a whole patient on a chip technology yet, right? And even if there were, it would be informed by what we know. And as I mentioned, we still know just little bits about the whole system. And so, you know, the danger is that you rely exclusively on these non-animal methodologies uh, and you, you, you know, the extremists keep calling them human relevant and everything else is irrelevant, right? But if you rely exclusively on them, you could very well miss very important things with respect to how these drugs are gonna function and how safe they are because you don't have the whole system. And how on earth, for example, would you, would you evaluate mental health diseases this way. And there's all kinds of limitations for that. And my episode uh, that's coming out on Get Real August 31st, will speak about this uh, in particular. So if anyone's oh, interested terrific. about these new uh, human relevant techniques, which are very powerful and I love them. And what they will do is allow us to reduce the number of animals necessary for our answers. But right. but they cannot replace a fully intact living system yet. We, we don't know how to design something um, to act like something we don't fully understand, right? Yeah, and in all of that, not only is it for human lives, but also animal lives. Wow, what an amazing conversation and a lot of information. We're talking with Dr. Cindy Buckmaster, who holds a PhD in neurobiology and behavior. An amazing amount of credits to her name. And we're talking about a program she created, Homes for Animal Heroes. Thank you for being on, Cindy. We're, this is a great conversation. Appreciate oh, thanks it. again. Uh, thanks again. I'm in, I'm enjoying our talk, and I hope your listeners are, are learning a lot. It's, yes, I hope so. I it's hard for me to think of a topic that's more important to people than their health and their future their future health, right? And the health right. of everyone they love, including their pets. So this well, is critical. It's yeah, critical we stuff. need this. I mean, we and your podcast again. Uh, tell me the name of your podcast again. It'll be it's in our called, show notes. It's called Get Real About Animal Research, and Get Real is one word with a capital G and a capital R and an exclamation point at the end and a monkey sitting in the G. So I love it. <laughs> to make Get Real one word or you'll come up with one million other Get Real. Everybody's getting real about something these days. Well, <laughs> you're, you, you, um, uh, you, you're one of the authentic people out there who says things that um, some of your industry doesn't want to say and also is very honest about all the misinformation. And that's the one thing I, I applaud you about because we, we sometimes get scared to tell the story if we know we're going to get hammered away. I, like you, believe we have, to, we have to put our stories out there. We have wonderful stories, but we also have this middle you know, that's been a theme in my podcast and always will be that a lot of the information solution dilemmas are in the middle and we need to be thoughtful about that. To that point, you mentioned, and I just want you to touch on highly regulated animals in research. I know I come from the exhibited animal industry. We're regulated by the gov the federal government and every state has its own uh, old regulations. So maybe people don't know how heavily the industry is regulated, if you want to just touch on that for a moment. Yeah, so there are federal regulations um, 
the Animal Welfare Act, which applies to all animals <clears throat> that aren't purpose-bred mice, rats, or birds. And uh, the extremists will always say, well, that's more than 95% of the animal research. So that means more than 95% of the animals aren't overseen by any regulatory authority. And that's, in fact, not true. Um, the largest granting agency in the world is the National Institutes of Health. And anybody who gets money from the NIH all over the world has to abide by the public health service policy, which is <laughs> um, overseen by the Office of Laboratory Animal Welfare, um, and which in some ways is even more specific. And it's exclusively about animals and research. So everybody is for the most part overseen by some regulatory aspect on the federal level. Um, and then, you know, there may be state regs as well, but um, primarily there's a, a very, a much more local oversight body in every institution that receives NIH money. Um, and the other thing I should tell you is that most institutions submit something called an assurance to the Office of Laboratory Animal Welfare. Some will call them OLA. Um, and that basically says, regardless of who we get money from, even if it's private funder, we're going to abide by PHS policy for all living vertebrates. So really the animals that aren't protected by the federal government on some level are very few and far between. And that would be probably in a very small mom and pop shop. Um, otherwise, uh, animals uh, have something called an institutional animal care and use committee, which is required uh, by federal law. And uh, this is a body of uh, that consists of researchers, specially trained lab animal veterinarians, um, uh, member of the public, um, people who are not affiliated with the institution. All of these varying people comprise this local at the institutional level oversight body. And that oversight body then does, you know, biannual inspections of uh, actually walking through the facilities, any lab that has any kind of animal work happening in it, and also document review and program review. And, and they are in tight communication with the Office of Laboratory Animal Welfare. Um, and that's why you'll read, you know, you read these articles where, uh, for example, SAEN, um, which is an animal rights group, a longstanding one run by um, Michael Budke and his wife, right? Or PETA, talking about all of these non-compliance issues, right? And then be in the newspaper and the media grabs them all up. Well, those reports of non-compliance come directly from the institutions, from the IACUC, <laughs> who have an obligation by law to let uh, the federal government know when something goes awry. You know, I mean, any of us who work with animals <laughs> know that they can get themselves into some trouble from time to time. Yeah. And also people are not infallible and uh, and sometimes, you know, they make mistakes. You know, think of all the, the surgeries with people that you, you know, they have to put L or R on your leg if they're gonna, yeah. you know, they have to identify which leg they're gonna work on because oftentimes they work on the wrong leg. So there's, you know, there's yes. a mistake, you know, or they, they forget a sponge in someone's but So things like this happen. And right. of course uh, we have an obligation to report all of that and then create mechanisms for pre preventing that in the future yes. and share all of that with the government. They have to agree with uh, the solutions. And so this is sort of how it goes. So it's very tightly regulated and very, uh, it's, it's sort of overseen in real time by many, many people. Um, and right. also uh, I should mention that there are, um, there's an opportunity for anybody anonymously to report anything that they're unhappy about to the IACUC or the federal government at any time. So there are all kinds of eyes watching and they don't all have to come out and, you know, and fess up that they've said something or, or seen something they didn't like. They can just go ahead and report. And that that is a good way of keeping people aware of their practices and helping them to ensure that they're always being as detail oriented and, and careful as they possibly can. These, these are living creatures. Um, you know, they're not things and we love them very much. And their value to us and what they do for us and everyone we love can't be overstated. So, um, you know, it's super important. And, and the regulatory mechanisms are in place to help ensure that they get the care and devotion that they need 
because we love them, but also because if we don't do that work well, then the data that comes from them is not as meaningful. Right. And the last thing we want to do is waste animal lives for no reason. Yeah. Right. So, you know, let's not sugarcoat this. I mean, some animals do experience some suffering when you give a mouse cancer, cancer's cancer, right? Yeah. So we need to be, we need to be on top of everything we can to ensure that these animals are as comfortable as possible. And, and that's where our specially trained vets come in as well. They, they know about every kind of animal you can think of, and they understand research. Right. So they're, they're a special breed. Your authenticity, again, is just tremendous. And one of the things I hope listeners take from this podcast, and I try to do this on every episode because we have guests from the, the CEO of the Iditarod to uh, famous horse trainers and everything in between. We're covering all aspects of animal care. And one of the things, the reason I wanted to do that, growing up with animals myself, on the exhibited side, including elephants, which are, of course, huge fundraiser and, you know, great fodder for the animal rights communities. And precious. Yeah, is to make people, (laughs) I think people want to feel comfortable. They don't mind that there's this middle ground that can even be messy at times or it's not as comfortable to hear. But I think people are, the general public, we're we're not talking about the small vocal minority who raise money off this stuff, I'm talking about John Q. Public, who's trying to raise a family and live a good life. And um, I think they want some permission to know that this stuff, that there are checks and balances in place. And from anything from medical research to whether I should ride an elephant in Southeast Asia, is it bad for the elephants? Is it hurting them? You know, and there's always these middle stories. So one of the reasons I wanted to do the podcast and the other thing I say I find myself saying this on every episode because I'm so passionate about it. Um, In the industry I come from, this is so pertinent, but in medical research, to believe that above and beyond your philosophical or ideologic view of whether there should be medical research, we can't tell you whether you should believe a certain thing or not. But for those who are in the middle and really understand that it's a necessary thing right now, to believe the stories you're told that everybody's horrid and abusive and miserable and that is to believe that everybody who goes to that building that day is, is um, closing their eyes to some unsavory things. And it's just not true. You, the way they vilify and monsterize people who work with animals makes it sound like we're in a dark room somewhere by ourselves and nobody else is seeing it. And nothing is further from the truth. You're, by vilifying an individual, whether it's a farmer, medical researcher, animal exhibitor, or zoo, is saying that everybody in those locations that comes in contact is excusing bad behavior or going along with it. And that is, the, that is not the norm. That is the exception to the rule that everybody would turn their back to it. So for listeners, please understand that you're hearing from people who have an agenda, not from the people who are actually living it and working with animals and supporting programs. It's it's not the case. And if I can get nothing else out of doing this podcast, that's really important to me. Mm-hmm. All right. So a little lightning round here. <laughs> right. Kind of. Um, you, I did a story a couple of years ago for protect the harvest, which will be in the show notes. Great organization. I'm going to have some of their folks on as well. Um, just protecting the way of life of Americans, uh, EPA. I did a story on the EPA 
and the desire for, at the time, the administrator, Andrew Willer, to decide with some uh, the animal rights community and not the actual science, respected science community, that animal use sh- by th- uh, should be reduced by 30% by 2025 and reduced all animal use by 2035. And I remember you helping, um, you were basically my expert on the story and said, you know, while it's always a goal we're working towards, it's just like, it just kind of pulled it out of the air with the help of people you know, who really aren't the experts. So I don't know if you, you just give a couple minutes to that. Well, no, I mean, that's right. I mean, of course, we all want that. We, we already talked about this. We want to move away from animals as soon as we can. But the whole point of the EPA is to ensure public safety, right? And so there are a lot of things that we introduce into the environment, and we can't know how safe they are for intact living systems unless we evaluate them in intact living systems, right? Um, and so, of course, we encourage the development of these. They call them, um, oh, gosh, what do they call NAMs? them? NAMs. NAMs, yeah. Um, and it's it's uh, new, new approach methodologies. New approach, methodology. right. yeah. new approach methodologies. And it's, it's basically non-animal means for uh, addressing whether or not something's safe. And there are already several of these in existence, you know, for local toxicity effects, like, for example, skin irritation or skin corrosion or eye irritation or eye corrosion. We can look or they can look. This is not something we do in biomedical research. Right. But people who study this sort of uh, environmental safety and, and you know of compounds, they can look uh, for very specific effects like that using non-animal means. But you still cannot determine, you know, is a reproductive toxicity, for example. Right. You know, uh, you know, what else could happen in the course of, of an entire being and in the course of a lifetime of an entire being um, you can't really isolate that in these new approach methodology so there was a great an admirable goal but it was without as far as i could tell any real reason i mean if you pick 2035 out of the air one would hope that that was based on some sort of rational plan that was informed by science and of course it wasn't because scientists weren't even you know consulted about this and you saw this in the in the press releases because it was uh, andrew wheeler administrator epa administrator andrew wheeler sitting there amongst a, a whole table full of animal rights extremists right so you know just this week i got word that uh that EPA, former EPA administrator Andrew Wheeler, is now on the advisory board of a very extreme animal rights group called the White Coat Waste Project, um, which does not uh, coin. They don't. They don't uh, call themselves an animal rights group. In fact, they say they're not an animal rights group. Uh, they say they're just, you know, um, fiscal conservatives. Right? That yeah. they're just. They're watchdogs for taxpayer funding, and they believe that animal research is a waste of taxpayer money. So they're trying to protect the taxpayer, right? So, and really, what they are is a bunch of fiscal conservatives masquerading um, as, uh, or animal rights extremists rather, masquerading as fiscal conservatives. Everything they do is about shutting off research by shutting off the money to the research, and uh, and they've made that very clear directly out of their own words. The leader of that organization, Anthony Bellotti, has said as much. You know, stop the gravy train, stop the research. Um, and so we know where Wheeler really stood here. It's not a yeah. surprise. He's yeah. Now, he's now on the advisory. But, you know, the danger is that somebody like that had control over an EPA agenda and uh, and did not involve the real experts. Right. Yes. And again, we want to move animal. Listen, animal models are not perfect. And uh, and there is a big gap with regard to, you know, sometimes we, we learn things in animals that don't apply directly to people. Um, and we want to close that gap, but we can't just abandon our only way for understanding in a fully intact living system because of what we want to do, unless we want to pay the consequences, right? This is the other thing I say to people, right? Your decision is, do you want treatments or not? Right. 
That's it. It's not whether or not you want animals. It's do you want treatments or not? And Absolutely. if you do, and do you want do you want to live in a safe environment? Do you want to worry about your kids getting poisoned by something and not know that it could hurt them? You just got to decide yes or no. Right. And then if you decide yes, then you have to accept that for now and the foreseeable future, animals are going to be necessary for us to understand some aspects of these things. Right. The best we can do is reduce our dependency on them by, you know, conducting tighter studies, incorporating these, these more human relevant, um, you know, stem cell based technologies into and into the whole formula so that we can reduce the number of animals necessary, tighten up the studies done. So fewer animals are necessary to give us the most meaningful data possible. That that's it. You just decide yes or no. Don't argue anymore about whether animals are necessary. They are period. Yeah. If you want treatments, if you don't want them, then fine. But that's right. really your choice. But also you don't dictate out, for everybody else. Don't create laws you where you're that, deciding right. for Listen, everybody else. This is, this is a great point. If you ask me, hey, Cindy, would you sign something right now that said you don't need any more biomedical advances? You could live with what you have. I would sign that because I'm, you know, I don't have kids. <laughs> I'm, you know, in my 50s now. And uh, I could, you know, I mean, for me, what's here is, is plenty, uh, you know, that, but I don't get to decide for the whole world. It doesn't right. really matter what Cindy Buckmaster personally feels about, uh, personally feels about this issue. Yeah. And I can't tell everybody else what to feel. They, it's a very personal issue. It's a very gray issue. There's nothing black and white about this issue. And it's a very fluid issue. Somebody in their 20s or 30s might be, you know, avidly against animals and research for whatever personal reason they have. And I get it. I love them. Right. And then all of a sudden they get pregnant and there's, you know, uh, a concern yeah. about the life of the, you know, or the baby is born and has a brain. And then all of a sudden, oh, yeah, now I believe in everything that I need to believe in in order for my child. It's personal. So, yeah, that's right. And so yeah. nobody should tell anybody. And I think the worst part about the extremist agenda is that they don't give you an opportunity to know the truth and make a decision. They give you misinformation so that you decide what they've already decided for you and yeah. for everybody you love. And you don't know it because you've been exploited for your lack of knowledge about these details. And they're, you know, they're very complicated. And you've been exploited, frankly, because you love animals. You're an easy mark. Your emotion has been completely exploited. Absolutely. And you know well, and what? This is an emotional issue. And, and you know, there's plenty of emotion in you know amongst us who work with these animals as well we're not we love these animals this is an emotional uh issue to talk about regardless this is not just about using emotion it's about using misinformation to manipulate emotion and wallets that's what this is about it's about fundraising absolutely i you know cindy i don't think we could wrap it up better than that i so appreciate your being on thank you so much for again being so authentic and being willing to talk about the the big picture of this and that there's there's a middle ground and we need to really just balance our information. And we can all make up our own minds, but we need to balance that and stop trying to create rules and laws and such that that you know, for everybody when we don't even have the information to do that. So Thank well, you. Thank you again for having me. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I know it. we'll we'll talk with you again and please check out Cindy's podcast. I know a lot of people are ready to hear more information from you. So that'll be great. We'll post that in show notes. Thank you, Cindy. Sure. Dr. Cindy Thank Buckmaster. You. I don't think there's any better example of what I call the uncomfortable middle, which I reference often on this podcast. It's so easy to rely on emotion. And there's so much more to these stories and the stories of these animal and human heroes who work tirelessly to find cures, to save people, children, and even pets. 
Again, if when you can go see for yourself, in this case, utilize the resources we're providing in show notes to learn more about Dr. Buckmaster and this issue. If you'd like to reach out to me, animaltalespodcast at gmail.com. Also, it's really important to me to provide this information. So please subscribe, rate and review the podcast, and please, by all means, share it with others. And I hope you'll join me next time on Animal Tales. <laughs>